read together, shall we? In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Lord, we are so thankful that we can gather in your presence. And we are so thankful that your presence manifests in our midst when we gather in your name. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to worship collectively, corporately. Thank you for the opportunity to share together now in the preaching of your word. Our hearts are open to receive from you. And I ask now that you will give us ears to hear what the Spirit will say to us in the midst of the preaching. Let this be more than just a, a one-sided conversation where somebody is speaking to people, but let this be a time in which your spirit interacts with our spirit and we are transformed by the work of your word. I lift up other life-giving churches and I pray blessing upon them. I pray for our loved ones not yet walking in right relationship with you and ask that you draw them, especially our sons and daughters who are not yet walking with you, who have wandered from the faith. Bring them back, Lord. Don't let one of them be lost. Father, I lift up to you the concerns that are on the hearts of the people today. I pray blessing upon them. I pray for your divine help to be extended to them. Touch them today at the point of their need. Encourage their hearts, I pray. Strengthen their lives. Give them a, a fresh run at it, O oh Lord. A new sense of purpose and a new awareness of your presence. Father, I just want to take a moment and thank you that a couple of the orphans, orphanages in Ukraine have been able to reach safety. I thank you for that, Lord. We, we see your hand at work there. We ask continued help and blessing upon those that remain and protection that you'll allow them also to be able to, to be out of harm's way. And we pray that you will bring an end to the violence. I pray all of these things today in the only name that matters, that matchless name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. In 1646, English and Scottish theologians wanted to bring about some unity in the Church of England. As part of this desire, they compiled a series of 107 questions and answers designed to articulate basic tenets of the faith. We know these questions and answers as the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The very first question of that catechism is, what is the chief end of man? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God 
and to enjoy him forever. It's a question that speaks to purpose. Everything has a purpose. And anything that is not used for the purpose for which it was created is useless. Think about it this way. I hold in my hand an ink pen. What are pens made for? To write. What good is a pen that doesn't write? Yeah, this week I cleaned out my desk drawer and threw away a handful of pens that had stopped fulfilling their purpose. I, uh, it, here's a pair of scissors. I'm not sure why we call it a pair of scissors. There's only one of them, but that's what we call it, isn't it? You know. Well, what's the purpose of scissors? To cut. And what good are scissors that don't cut? You, you know, if they fall apart and these things don't meet, you, you just toss it. You get the idea. Everything has a purpose, and if it's not fulfilling that purpose, then it's of little or no value. The Lord speaks through the prophet in Isaiah 43, verses 5 through 7, and says, Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Everyone who is called by my name, watch this, and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. The reason you are created isn't to make a name for yourself. It isn't to rise to the top of your profession. It isn't to amass a vast fortune or excel in your field of expertise. Everything in your life is tied in some way to bringing glory to God. If you started living in a conscious and intentional way for the purpose for which God created you, it would revolutionize your life. When you get back home today, maybe you ought to just print out on a piece of paper and tape it to your bathroom mirror so you'll see it first thing every morning, the words, today I'm going to live in such a way that God will be glorified. To give glory to God, that's your purpose. The word glory in the Old Testament is from the Hebrew word chabad, and in the New Testament is the Greek word doxa. It's the word that the Bible uses to describe the majesty of the manifest presence of God. When we talk about God's glory, we're talking about an attribute of God. The glory of God is the revealed magnificence of God. It's the excellence of God. It's the weight of his presence. It's the brilliant splendor of God. It's his honor and his dignity. The glory of God is the part of him that you are able to see and continue to live. The glory of God is the part of him you're able to experience, and through seeing and experiencing his glory, you're able to know that he exists. Acts 7-2 describes God as the God of glory, 
And when you look into the pages of the Bible, you find his glory revealed over and over again. The first time the Bible talks about the revelation of his glory is in creation. The Bible is very clear that the creation of this universe was not a random event. It wasn't an accidental collision of particles. It wasn't a chance bonding of molecules. This world and everything in it was a planned event. It has structure and organization. It has definition and purpose. In creation, God began with nothing but himself. And through the creative action of his spoken word, called into existence an awe-inspiring masterpiece so complex and diverse that there is a seemingly unending supply of mysteries to uncover. When God engages this act of creation, he begins with nothing more than a creative thought from his infinite mind. No single-celled organism, no tiny particle of an atom, no gas, solid, or liquid, no beaker, no test tube, no element from the periodic table. When God starts, he's creating, which means that he's taking nothing in order to make something. Only God can do this. See, we can transplant, but we can't make a plant. We can generate, but we can't originate. We can cultivate, but we can't create. We can take something and make something else out of it, but we can't make something out of nothing. But when God began his creative work, he took nothing and made something and called it heaven. He rolled his hands around with nothing in them and spoke the word and made something and called it earth. He waved his hand across a vast void of emptiness and spoke the word and out of nowhere came bright spots of light. He called them stars. He pointed his finger and spoke the word and planets started revolving around the sun. And when he finally got through making all of that something out of nothing he took that something and hung it nowhere on nothing and called it a universe no wonder the psalmist sang in psalm 19 and 1 the heavens are telling of the glory of god and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands well not only is his glory revealed in creation but then i want you to see his glory revealed in his chosen people as a sovereign act of his will and grace, God set apart the children of Israel as a nation through whom he would reveal his glory to all the people of the earth. The way God deals with Israel in history all the way up to our present time is a demonstration of the glory of his manifest presence and is an illustration of how God intends to deal with all humanity. It isn't because Israel was more deserving than other nations. It's simply because God chose them as an act of his grace. He begins by revealing his glory to a wandering nomad from Ur of the Chaldeans named Abraham and his wife Sarah. And a barren tent is filled with laughter as a son of promise is miraculously born to a couple in their old age. 
His glory is revealed as he wrestles all night with Jacob. And the supplanter and the deceiver is changed in that encounter into Israel, blessed by the Almighty. His glory is revealed in a burning bush in the middle of the desert. And a stuttering sheep herder becomes the deliverer of the people of God. His glory is revealed as he guides his people through the wilderness in the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. His glory is revealed at the dedication of a building erected by King Solomon. And a house of wood and stone is turned into a temple of worship as the glory of God comes down in such magnitude that the priests are not able to stand to minister. His glory is revealed when three young men in exile refuse to bow down to a Babylonian idol made of gold and a fiery furnace becomes a sanctuary graced by the presence of the fourth man in the fire. His glory is revealed in the return of the exiles under Ezra and Zechariah, in the restored temple under the leadership of Zerubbabel and in the rebuilt walls of Jerusalem under Nehemiah. And then there are 400 silent years, years in which there is no word from the Lord, years in which other nations are the masters and Israel is the servant. There is no holy smoke in the temple. There is no fire from heaven. There is no glory. It seemed the people of God had been forsaken when suddenly into the blackest of nights and the stillest of silences shined the light of the world and a song burst forth. Some of the most exciting words in all the Bible are the first five words of John chapter 1 verse 1 when it says, And the Word became flesh. John continues and testifies in verse 14, And we beheld His glory full of grace and truth it was as if God was saying you think my glory in creation was something you think my glory in my chosen people was something well you haven't seen anything until you've seen the great God of the universe become a human baby you haven't seen anything until you see my glory in the cradle think about it this same God who spoke the world into existence the same God who rolled back the waters of the Red Sea the same God who is so vast that 2 Chronicles 2 and 6 declares the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain him. The very idea that this same God could somehow fit himself into a tiny microscopic cell planted in the womb of a virgin simply boggles the imagination. Huh? But the Holy Spirit came upon the Virgin Mary and the power of the Most High overshadowed her. The glory of God visited her. Nine months later Later, the baby was born the glory was revealed and the stable became a holy place the glory was revealed and the angels sang glory to God in the highest and on earth peace goodwill toward men the glory was revealed and the shepherds left their flocks on the hillside to go to Bethlehem to see this thing that the Lord had made known to them the glory was revealed and the star appeared in the heavens to announce the birth of the Messiah the glory was revealed and the wise men left homes and families and journeyed from a distant country to pay homage to him who was born king of the Jews. His glory is revealed in creation. His glory is revealed in his chosen people. His glory is revealed in the cradle. And then I want you to see that his glory is revealed in the cross. The cross, instrument of cruel punishment and death. The cross, symbol of Roman justice. The cross, 
precious metal suspended from a chain and casually hung around the neck. What possible glory could be found in that? I want to tell you, this is the good news of the gospel. Holy God and sinful humanity were separated by a great yawning chasm that could not be spanned. But on the cross, with one hand, this Jesus took hold of the hand of the Heavenly Father. And with the other, he reached down to lost humanity. And suddenly, that chasm was bridged. See, it was at the cross that the centurion looked into the face of a dying Christ and said, truly, this was the Son of God. At the cross, the earth was shaken, the graves were opened, the saints were resurrected from the dead and were seen walking on the streets of Jerusalem. At the cross, the final atonement for sin was offered and a new order was instituted. The veil of the temple that we were singing about was torn from top to bottom and now everyone is invited to enter the presence of God through Jesus. At the cross, Satan was once and for all defeated. At the cross, demons were put in their place. A public display was made of their defeat. At the cross, the bondage of sin was broken. At the cross, you were redeemed. At the cross, you were sanctified. At the cross, you were reconciled back to God. At the cross, you were given peace. At the cross, you were empowered to live the overcoming life. At the cross, you were able to see the greatest demonstration of love that has ever been shown. For at the cross, God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It was the cross that brought about the fulfillment of the psalmist's song in Psalm 85 and 10. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. The apostle Paul understood the glory of the cross when he wrote in Galatians 6 and 14. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It is because of the glory of the cross that you can now see his glory in changed lives. And this brings me back to the words in verse 14 of our text that say, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. As, as I was thinking about this word redemption this week, I was reminded of the summer of 1967. I was between the sixth and seventh grades in school, living with my dad, mom, and younger brother in a one traffic light rural town in North Florida where my father was serving as the pastor of a small congregation. Right down the street lived a neighbor boy just a little older than me named Rodney. That summer, Rodney, my brother Bruce, and I spent a lot of time together riding our bikes, playing together, and just generally trying to stay out of trouble. Some of you will remember that in those days, soft drinks weren't packaged in aluminum cans or plastic. They came in glass bottles. Does anybody remember that? You know... They taste a whole lot better coming out of glass bottles, don't they? Come on, somebody. 
And do you remember, remember this? Once the drink was finished, you could return the bottle and depending on where you returned them, you could collect anywhere from two cents up to a nickel per bottle. You remember that? That summer, I'm not sure who came up with the idea, but one of us decided that we could make some serious money. You got to remember, this is 1967, and we were kids, all right? Serious money by picking up soft drink bottles lying on the side of the road where they'd been tossed out of cars. This is before littering was a thing, all right? People just, you know, we could pick those up and we could return them to collect the deposit. All three of us had bicycles and they all had baskets on the front. We rode and scanned the side of every road leading into and out of the small town. You, you know, you've seen these signs, road beautification by such and such. They could have put our names right there because we were picking up all these bottles, you know. We scanned the side of every road leading into and out of that small town as well as every street, lane, and avenue inside the city limits looking for discarded soft drink bottles. <laughs> we would find one, brush the dirt off the outside, empty out any remaining liquid. Sometimes that was soft drink that hadn't been consumed before it was discarded and sometimes it was rainwater or ditch water that had collected in that bottle, you know, and God only knows what else was growing inside of there. And we'd place that thing in the basket and we'd keep riding looking for others until the basket was full. If we took the bottles down to the local gas station, they would give us three cents for each bottle. But one of us, probably Rodney, <laughs> discovered that if we took them to the local bar, located right on the edge of town, they would give us a nickel each. So that's where we went. Two preacher's kids and a rowdy neighbor boy <laughs> down to the local bar. We'd ride around to the back, knock on the door. When someone came to answer, we'd ask them if they would buy back the bottles we had collected. And that's how we earned our summer spending money, scavenging for and redeeming soft drink bottles. That's what I thought about when I read verse 14 about the redemption of God's own possession. The entire theme of the Bible is God scavenging for lost humanity and then buying them back into a restored relationship with Him. See, sin had caused you to be used up and tossed away. You were left on the side of the road, dirty, forgotten, undesirable, just waiting for someone or something to come along and crush you beyond recognition or repair. And some of you had laid there for such a long time that the label had faded and there were all kind of nasty things growing on the inside. In that condition, when you could do nothing to save yourself, along came the grace of God. Grace found you. Grace picked you up. Grace brushed you off. Grace brought you to Jesus. 
Jesus, through his death on the cross, redeemed you. He bought you back. He reclaimed you. He repositioned you. He repurposed you. He gave you a future and a hope. Your redemption is a revelation of the glory of God. It is revealed in the change that has happened now that you are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. Paul writes that this redemption is to the praise of his glory. It is soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. If there is something of your own that you can claim as leading to salvation, then you no longer boast in Christ alone. But if he is the author and the finisher of your faith, then he alone is to be magnified for his sovereign grace. Only if your salvation is by grace alone will God alone receive all the glory. Your life changed by the power of Christ's redemption is a trophy of God's grace. I wish you'd start to see yourself that way today. You are saved so that God can put you on display both in this lifetime and throughout all the endless ages of eternity. Through your changed life, he demonstrates his glory. You are saved to the praise of his glory. Oh, I know what the circumstances of your life say. I know what your past tries to dictate. I know what some of your teachers told you. I I know what your parents said about you. I know what your spouse thinks. I know the accusation of the enemy of your soul. But redemption says that you are a trophy of God's grace. You live to the praise of his glory. I tell you, because of redemption, you are not bound by your past. Because of redemption, you are not bound by your circumstances. Because of redemption, you are not doomed to repeat the same mistakes over and over again. But you can break that pattern. Because of redemption, your past doesn't determine your future. Because of redemption, you are accepted in the beloved. Because of redemption, you are free. Because of redemption, you are a child of the Most High God. Because of redemption, you are victorious. Because of redemption, your battered life is healed. Because of redemption, your broken relationship is mended. Because of redemption, your wounded spirit is restored. Because of redemption, you don't have to continue living the way you used to. Because of redemption, you don't have to travel the path to destruction any longer. Because of redemption, you are not condemned. You are forgiven. The reason you are saved is so that God's glory can be revealed in your life that is transformed through the power of redemption. The catechism had it right. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's what 2 Corinthians 4, 7 means when it says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels 
that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. That's the meaning of Colossians 1 and 27. God willed to make known to his saints what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Years ago, we used to sing a little chorus in church that said, when Jesus comes, the tempter's power is broken. When Jesus comes, the tears are wiped away. He takes the gloom and fills the life with glory. And I love this last line. For all is changed when Jesus comes to stay. I want to tell you that's what Jesus wants to do for you today. He wants to redeem your life. He wants to change you, to transform you from the inside out. He does this so that your changed life will be a revelation to everyone around you of the glory of God. That's your purpose, to glorify God. If you start living with that in mind, everything you do, I mean, at one point, the Apostle Paul writes, he says, whatsoever you do, do it heartily unto the Lord. Everything you do, if you can't do it to the praise of his glory, maybe that's something you ought not to be doing. <clears throat> because at that point, you're not fulfilling your purpose. There's only one way to be saved. I've been talking about it through this series. By grace alone, sola gratia, through faith alone, sola fide, in Christ alone, solus Christus, to the glory of God alone, soli Deo gloria. It's possible that I'm preaching to somebody today who needs something to change. I want to pray with you and I want to believe for that change to happen in your life. Would you bow with me, please? While we wait for just a moment with our heads bowed, I just wonder if there's somebody who would say to me, Pastor, that's me. There's something I need to change. Something needs to change in my life. I need God to effect that kind of change. Can I see your hand, please? Just put it up for a second so I know who you are. Yeah, number of hands. Thank you. Father, I'm praying for these people today. Some of us, oh Lord, we've been praying about something for quite a while and it just doesn't seem like anything's moving. So I'm asking you to look with mercy and compassion upon your people. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you will today turn these things around for them. I don't know the change they need to happen, but you know. So I pray today that your power will intervene 
in their lives. You will touch them today and you'll touch this situation. Turn it around to the praise of your glory. See, Lord, we know we can't do it, but when you do it all by yourself, then you are the only one who gets the glory for it. So we, we release it to you, Lord. We surrender to your will and your purpose right now. Father, maybe there's somebody that what they need to change, what they need to have change in their life is they need to start trusting you as their savior. They've been trusting other things. They've been ignoring your plan and your will. So Lord, today, give them the courage to just simply say yes to you. We don't need a feeling. We don't need a sign. We just need to make up our mind that we're going to follow your way. Go your, according to your plan. Instead of putting ourselves at the center of our lives, we're going to put you at the center of our life make you our focus we make that decision today Lord we surrender to you thank you for hearing our prayer in Jesus name Amen